Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Reptile Living Room. Of course, this is part two of the Venom interviews with Ray Morgan. So, really don't need any more introduction than that. We're just going to jump right back into the interview where we left off in part number one. Thanks for tuning in. But there's a lot of species out there that, you know, that they just don't know. It, it, you don't know enough about how to keep them alive. I mentioned the Calliophus, the blue Malaysian coral snakes. They're really, really difficult snakes to keep alive. It would be really cool if, you know, 15 years from now, somebody had really cracked the code to consistently get them to thrive and maybe even reproduce. That's a, uh, a snake we don't know a lot about. We don't know a lot about its biology. It's fairly large for a coral snake, or it gets fairly large. Mm-hmm. It has a bizarre feature where its venom gland extends a third of the way down its body. It, it is, um, we, we don't know a lot about uh, it's how dangerous it is, but an elapid with a venom gland that big is... <laughs> I'm I'm gonna vote for the side of yeah, it'll kill you. (laughs) Yeah, that's something that you would give an enormous amount of perspective. There's no there's no monovalent antivenom for that. So, Mm. um, so anyway, to get back to the original point, I think what what a lot of the people in this project find interesting, they find the process of learning interesting. Um, If you look at uh, probably one of the uh, the best example of a private keeper doing biological research, uh, Mark Seward, uh, up in Colorado Springs, does work with heel monsters and has probably the most sophisticated um, operation for reproducing and studying the reproductive biology of heel monsters that I've seen anywhere. And he's learned an incredible amount about not just their basic biology, but what is going on inside these animals while they're, you know, during their gestation period, uh, their wow. reproductive period. Um, just, it, he's learned a lot because he started largely with a clean slate. There wasn't a lot known about these animals. And I, I think that is probably a common thread with all of, uh, you know, with, with all of the, the people. Um, you know, we talked about Denise, uh, Denise Bruce. She's, she's got hatchling coral snakes, hatchling eastern coral snakes that she's got. Thriving yeah. and growing and gaining weight, and you know that's a talk about a delicate little. You're talking about snakes that uh, elapids that hatch, and they're not much bigger than a good sized earthworm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to you know to tube feed these things and keep them alone. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's, you don't hear too many people feed, uh, tube feeding coral snakes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's well, they you know they, they tube feed all the adults, which makes you know which makes perfect sense. But you you're talking about trying to tube feed something the size of a large earthworm. And that's a delicate little animal. Yeah. And, uh, to to not only give it the nutrition it needs, but to give it the you know the the care. The care that actually yeah. Thrive and you know that so uh, those kinds of things are just incredibly interesting to me when people do things that are difficult. They do things that are hard and solve hard problems. Right. Right. <clears throat> now we do have a couple of questions uh, from one of our listeners, Edgar Ortega. Um, <laughs> Yes, hi, Edgar. <laughs> One of them says, um, when is the Venom interview going to be out? Everyone keeps asking me. <laughs> uh, so, the answer is, well, first of all, it, uh, I was hoping that it would certainly be out by now. Um, I had the, the good problem, I guess if uh, a problem can be a good problem to have, the problem was that I got so much more 
good material than I ever could have anticipated. Right. Um, so it took, it, it has taken and is taking quite a lot longer to edit that together into a, into kind of a cohesive narrative. You, know, you start out with a documentary film and you have a, a subject in mind. In yeah. this case, the subject was you know, venomous herpetology, professions and professional people in the field of venomous herpetology. Well, you go into it and you don't have any idea what you're going to get. You don't have any idea if yeah, it's going to be interesting. You don't have any idea if any kind of real story is going to emerge from it. You you kind of uh, you you give you have the best idea that you can about what uh, what subjects you want to cover, what things you're interested in, and you know hope against hope that some story emerges out of it. Right, right. And so uh, because I was unsure about whether uh, you know whether it was going to end up being very interesting or whether any real story emerges, I shot a lot of material. Uh, I was on I was on the road. Well, I, had, I did a total of four road trips, including one uh, about a 15,000-mile road trip circling North America. Uh, I was on the road for almost eight weeks and you know, just literally draw a you know, big scribble across the map of North America. And <laughs> I, I think I hit 32 states in, in eight weeks and talked to about 40 people. Uh, but I ended up with an enormous quantity of material and not just a lot of it, but an enormous quantity of really good, interesting Material for some from some really interesting charismatic people, right? And so to get back to your question, when is it coming out? Uh, it's coming out as soon as I can dig through or finish digging through this this huge quantity of, of footage. Um, it still looks like uh, it, there's going to be two uh, two releases or two end products. One is going to be probably uh, what I would call a broadcast cut, which is the a 90 minute or so uh, cut, which is um, kind of the, the highlights of the entire project, and it'll cover a bit of all of these different subjects that we've talked about. Sure. But, but then a longer DVD cut, which is probably, my guess is it's going gonna, it's gonna to land somewhere around four hours or so. Wow. Uh, it, kind of the extended material or extended... Uh, you know, the director's special. cut. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so where is the project now? It's, it's in, the, it's in the, the home stretch of editing. So Okay. Uh, most of the editing is behind me. Um, I, you know, I had a huge amount of, uh, you know, just clean up and getting, you know, getting the good material. But then to, to take and thread those together into, uh, you know, into a sensible discussion on a topic. So, <laughs> into a cohesive storyline that makes sense to everybody. Yeah, I mean, so, so what is the story? So I, I, you know, literally got in the car and started driving. No, I'm, I'm going to be on the road. I'm going to, I'm going to spend a bunch of money and I'm going to be gone for a real long time. And I, I'm hoping some story comes out of this. And it, I was, you know, I was a couple of weeks into this and I was still thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm still not sure. There's, there's, there's a story um, so you get, you know, I, I was really nervous about, you know, what was going to come out of it. Well, it turns out that there is a story and I can, uh, Without telling the story, I can tell you what the story is. And what turns out is that there's uh, there kind of this collective biography, or there's kind of a, a life story of people who uh, who are in the field. I mentioned they all start as kids, and if you look at some of the the previews, I think the first trailer that I released uh, has 
some very short clips of these people not only talking about, you know, I was six years old, I was eight years old, first grade, third grade, uh, there's a California king snake in the classroom, um, but then the same species kept coming out, where it was everybody started with a garter snake. <laughs> and to have, you know, to go through these people who ended up in all different parts of the country, in all different fields, and to have all of them say, oh, you know, I was six years old with a garter snake. And what was fascinating to me is I started when I was about seven years old and my first snake was a garter snake. <laughs> and and it, it literally got, it was so funny that I remember when I was talking to Carl Person at Loma Linda, uh, you know, I, I hadn't, you know, he hadn't seen any of the other clips because I, I didn't want anybody to see anything before I did their interview. Sure. And so, you know, Carl and I were talking, he said, well, how did, how did it start? And he said, you know, I, you know, I was about eight years old. I finally caught my first garter snake. And I tipped my head down and held my nose to keep from laughing. <laughs> he went, and he went, you know, on with the story. And, and we, we finished the interview. And then afterwards, he asked me, what was that about? And I said, I'll send you a clip. You'll have to see. But there was this, this hilarious uh, pattern, uh, this, this wild coincidence of, you know, dinosaurs and garter snakes. Exactly, it's like dinosaurs and garter snakes. And that was, you know, that was me, and it was dinosaurs and garter snakes. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was a dinosaur fan. I remember uh, my my dad actually telling me, um, after I got older, that he's like, yeah, you know, I used to try to read you dinosaur books, and you would actually pronounce the Latin names instead of the, you know, the normal ones. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, and he's like, yeah, I would read a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and you would tell me, that, you know, I was pronouncing it wrong and pronounce it in Latin. <laughs> I was like, really? I don't remember that. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, dinosaurs and garter snakes. Yeah, that's where it all starts. Well, it was, you know, what was, what was funny, and, the, uh, and even after a year, uh, you know, being a year into editing at this point, um, it's still a, a, a clip that I can't watch without cracking up. I'm just, I'm laughing out loud because, because to see all of these people, you know, ranging from, you know, you hear Terry Phillip and Doug Holder talking about playing with plastic dinosaurs and Brian Fry talking about, you know, dreaming of the day the dinosaurs will return. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and at some point we realize, you know, we're never going to have a dinosaur. Those are gone, but you can kind of have these things that are sort of like dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for some you know, for, for some population of it, uh, of us, it sticks, and it's you know, it sticks for life. And the fact that the pattern was that specific—I mean, I expected it to be, you know, it, you know, it, it starts during childhood, but then I, I expected more diversity in the story. And I, and actually, frankly, I was hoping for yeah. more diversity in the story until it became really clear how strong of a pattern it was. And then it was, you know, it wasn't just the age range, and it wasn't just, you know, it, it wasn't just the circumstances. It wasn't just, you know, where somebody lived. It was the same species, which <laughs> that was, or same same genus anyway. Yeah. But um, it, just a just a hilarious coincidence that I'm enormously amused by, even even after having watched it frame by frame by frame hundreds of times. Um, it, it's still it's still a lot of fun. Oh, sure, sure, definitely. Now, um, <clears throat> what's your all-time, uh, Edgar would like to know, what's your all-time favorite reptile, uh, captive reptile? Oh, man. Uh, it's kind of 
kind of like asking a musician what their favorite song is. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, I have, I, I think that the closest I could get to that is, um, you know, kind of to reiterate what I said before, I like things that are a little bit mysterious, things that are not, not so well understood that you can produce 40 different named morphs of them. Yeah. Um, so I think generally what interests me is is that not my interest in herpetology is it, it's fairly snake specific. Um, there's definitely some other interest that uh, lizards that interest me. Heloderma are super interesting. Sure. Um, there's aspects of other lizards. The work that Brian's done with Komodos I think is is really fascinating. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm a snake guy. Um, so within that. It's been partly limited by living here in California, where non-native venomous are illegal. Um, yes. Yeah. And and a lot of the rattlesnakes here, um, you know, speckled rattlesnakes can be absolutely stunning animals. They can be absolutely <sighs> spectacular. Yeah, they can. Um, you know, western diamondbacks ha- they they haven't interested me that much. Um, you know, the area that I'm in here, that I, I live, I have Southern Pacifics and red diamond rattlesnakes around here. Mm-hmm. Um, Red diamond rattlesnakes are, you know, they're they're an interesting enough animal. Southern Pacifics are. I don't I don't know that I would work with them in captivity. <laughs> uh, they are they are a uniquely dangerous rattlesnake. Yes, they are. And yes, they the are. Crowfab doesn't work very well against them. Right. Um, and when I say it doesn't work very well, it's not that it's you know, it's ten or twenty percent less effective. It's an order of magnitude less effective against. Uh, Against Hellerai, and uh, well, I, I've seen some Hellerai that were beautiful animals. There's, there's actually one at, uh, at Loma Linda. It's one of the prettiest rattlesnakes I've ever seen. But that's, you know, that's they're generally not an animal that you keep for its beauty. So, yeah. In terms of favorite animals, I kind of gravitated to other things I could keep. So I mentioned boigas. I, you know, I love, uh, you know, boiga cynea is a is a really interesting animal. Uh, uh, Dendrophila, the, the Traditional mangrove snakes just, just love them. Um, I, I love, you know, I, I, lately, uh, aside from venomous animals, I've really got a thing for large colubrids and mm. some of the oddball stuff like the Mexican lion pine snakes that you don't find a lot. Um, the Mexican red tailed indigos, which I'd love to, to be able to get a hold of. Um, I mentioned that I have a, a couple of musaranas coming which get, um, you know, clearly, clearly against those get big. Yeah, they get that can be a seven, eight foot, you know, the indigo size, um, an indigo size colubrid, right? And that, that has behavior, you know, it's 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 feeding response is psychotic, like an indigo snake. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's a that's a snake that you know you could uh, you could read everything that's been written about them, and it would take you maybe three or four hours. There's not a lot of information published. <clears throat> about about this animal, they're you know they're kept they thrive in captivity. Uh, reproducing them has has not been has uh, has been done. It's been done successfully. Right. But there aren't a lot of them around, and so uh, so I'm I'm super excited about that now. So my uh, I would uh, expect in the next week or so, once those arrive, I'm going to become a Musarana fanatic, and that will <laughs> be my new favorite snake. Um. But in the, in the venomous world, uh, so I mentioned my wife and I are looking at moving uh, out of the country. We're actually in the process of trying to build a place in, in 
Costa Rica where, you know, there's far less restrictions than, than there are here. Um, so there's things like, you know, aspidolabs, the coral cobras. I, you know, I just think they're, they're, uh, they're a fascinating snake to, to watch and to observe. They're beautiful. They're, if Dr. Seuss was going to cross a hugno snake and a cobra, that's probably pretty much what he ended up with. Yep. Um, they're, uh, they're this beautiful, funny little elapid that's full of attitude, and they're, you know, they're not particularly dangerous, but they are thoroughly entertaining. Um, you know, I, there's, there's snakes that I would love to work with that are solidly out of my league at this point. I would love to work with king cobras. Um, but that is, I don't think people realize how big a big king cobra is. I mean, if you look down at the palm of your hand, uh, the head of a 15-footer is about the size of the palm of your hand. Your hands are about the same size as mine. It's, yeah, that, you know... That is a, a big snake. Well, one of the people that I interviewed, and I don't remember if it was Fry or if it was uh, someone else that I interviewed about working with venomous snakes, um, said something that, you know, because I mentioned the same thing. I said, you know, God you've worked with King Cobras, that's got to be, you know, the epitome of your career. And they said something to me which stuck to me, which, stu which stuck with me to this day. And that was, you do not know fear until you open the door to your snake room and a King Cobra is standing at eye level with you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I never thought about that, but they could definitely do that. Yeah, no, I'm good. I don't need to work with King Cobras anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly, certainly chest level. They're yeah. A, they're a big, big snake. <laughs> I guess what, what, if there's anything that mitigates them, oftentimes, once they get that big, you know, they get old and they calm down a little bit. As, as youngsters, they're very nervous. Mm. Uh, they're very nervous snakes. And they're, no, uh, that brings up something, nervous snakes. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if you want to talk about it or not, but can you tell uh, our audience about your experience with uh, the Bushmasters? Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the term was batshit crazy. <laughs> well, they're they're um, bushmasters are as vipers go. They're they're a fairly docile, laid back snake, um, but they have a feeding response that is it, it resembles an indigo snake in, in that they'll vipers in general are are ambush predators. They sit and wait. Right, right. Uh, bush, bushmasters are also uh, you know largely a sit and wait type predator, but once they've got something on their radar, they will actively pursue it, and they can pursue it very quickly over large distances. Mm. And if you you know, have, to have a snake that's six or seven or eight feet long, large distances to a seven-foot bushmaster is a long distance. Um, yeah, that would be. It's an animal that can, it can lunge and recoil and lunge and recoil and lunge and recoil, and it can cover its own body length before you can get out of the way and so their um, their feeding response is if you were to I think I've described it as like an indigo snake with a, a grenade for a head yeah <laughs> I think that was how you described it actually yeah they're they're very enthusiastic feeders and I think uh, you know Dean had mentioned that the worst uh, envenomation he had from a Bushmaster was a feeding response one had got a hold of his arm and just topped him off just gave it gave him everything it had Oh. And that's a you, you have to hear his account of what that envenomation. Oh, I'm is, sure. But it's 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 an envenomation that becomes systemic very quickly. Um, oh dear lord! There's uh, 
uh, it's, it's, a, it's a rather unpleasant description, but it's, it involves full body spasms and loss of muscle control and, you know, bowels and digestive control. The circulations, the whole nine yards, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty violent reaction. Wow. It, and it's, it, it's a, it's different from, you know, it, it has its own kind of character to the envenomation. Wow. Uh, and it's, it's a, it's a big snake. Um, but another, uh, I had read somewhere that, uh, somebody was comparing the level of uh, apprehension in working with them to things like, you know, black mambas or king cobras. And, uh, and I, now I wish I could re recall who, who made the statement. Somebody can probably chime in and correct it. But uh, the, the statement was something to the effect that uh, you haven't seen uh, crazy or you haven't experienced fear until you've... Uh, until you've been confronted with a bushmaster that's intent on killing you, you know, forget, forget black mambas or king cobras. Uh, you know, a, a bushmaster is a, it's a formidable animal to work with, and I think it, not that they're especially aggressive animals, but their feeding response is really enthusiastic and it's really explosive. And I think, you know, there, there are certain species that people make mistakes with. They make mistakes with bitus a lot because things like. Mm. Uh, gaboon vipers or rhino vipers or puff adders, they sit. They might sit for a week or two weeks and never move. Right. And then. And you got to go in there like pump the snake. Are you still alive? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, and people think you know it's this big fat slug of a snake, and you know, they don't yep. realize. Well, you know, there's 12 or 15 pounds of solid muscle there. Right. And when they move, they are explosive. They get, I would say, almost airborne, but they get actually airborne. Yeah. And um, in fact, I think Terry described it as levitating. You haven't, until you've seen a gaboon viper levitate, you haven't seen them do what they're capable of doing. And I think people do underestimate snakes that are either traditionally very sluggish or very sedentary, and but are capable of either very enthusiastic feeding responses or very explosive defensive responses. And you have, you have, you know, lots of lots of keepers, private and otherwise, get hit by those. Um, and it, you know, it's an easy it's easy to get lulled into that false sense of security. I think it's um, you, you have to depend not on uh, reflexes, but on your protocol, on the things that you do to keep them, you know, to, to keep them out of range. Right, right, and I and I definitely completely one hundred percent agree with you as far as you know any keepers working with. Uh, venomous, seemingly sedentary snakes <clears throat> getting lulled into a false sense of security. Uh, like we said, whether they be private keepers or keepers in a zoo, even you can get lulled into that because you know it. Vipers specifically are a heavy-bodied, sit-and-wait predator that don't move around a whole lot. But when they do, and there's intent behind it, look out because. <laughs> Yeah, they, Those they, things can move. Oh, they're 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 incredibly fast. Um, yeah. And there was a video I posted to the Venom Interviews uh, Facebook page. I, I think it was a few weeks ago of uh, somebody taking high speed uh, video of a, I believe it was a puff adder. Like I'm, yeah, I think it was a puff adder, just exploding out of this plastic container. Ugh. And even slowed down to one fifth of its original speed. It was, it was just. If it were moving at one fifth of its original speed, you wouldn't be able to get out of the way. Wow. And at full speed, 
you'd be hit before you even knew it was in motion. It's right, uh, and you know, and you hear you hear less experienced keepers, um, you know, that have this this uh, ill-founded bravado that oh, you know, I'll see it coming. I can get out of the way. I've got great reflexes. I'm you know, <laughs> I'm young and healthy and smart, and you just you don't you don't realize. I mean, these are these are animals that prey on other animals that are very nervous. Yeah. <laughs> they're nervous by nature. They're, you know, they're mice and rats. They're just, you know, it, it's like a human on speed, you They're constantly paranoid. Yeah, I, I, anybody who's relying on their, their, their reflexes, I think is, I, I think, a, I hate to say that it's a, not a matter of if, but when, uh, Jeff Bob made some great points about that, that cliche. Which I, I don't think it, it is always uh, a matter of you know not not if but when uh, because there are plenty of really good keepers who have you know gone decades and have perfectly clean safety records. Right. But if you have people who are doing foolish things that have bad handling techniques or have bad habits like uh, relying on their their reflexes, I think for a lot of those it probably is a matter of time. Yeah, definitely. You know, and that's the thing that really. Just and I'm sure it does to you too. Just gets you up in a rile because it's like we, like you said, we have all of these keepers that have been doing this for decades and decades that have never been envenomated, never had any of their crew envenomated, and what have you. But as soon as someone gets envenomated, it makes all the news in the world. Yep. You know. Yeah. And whether this guy was keeping the stuff for six months and you know didn't know, you know, squat about what he was doing. We always, the media always seems to forget that we have, you know, all these other people that have been doing this for 20 plus years and never been envenomated because of their safety protocols and what they do correctly. Yeah, but what's interesting about that? <laughs> From a media standpoint, you're never going to sell, right. you know, you're never going to sell commercials on people not getting bit. Yeah. Um, that was actually, you know, once I, I realized that, you know, Gee, I'm making a movie about people not getting bit. Um, is this going to be the most boring documentary in the world? Well, I, I don't think it, it is. It, it turns out that I think it's still very, very interesting. But it doesn't have that immediate, uh, visceral appeal that you know that that train wrecks or car accidents or you know people getting mauled by lions in a zoo or trampled by elephants. You know, yeah, people. It, it, there's that car wreck effect that, you know, when it happens, you know, you, it, it's hard. It's hard to look away, and those are the things that make news. And unfortunately, much worse than making news, those are the things that make policy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very protective of the interest of private keepers because, you know, back to one of your earlier questions, I'm. You, you have people. Legislators tend to frame questions this way. Well, why should we allow that? And anytime somebody's asking, why should we allow that? Why should we allow people to keep venomous animals? Why should we allow people to keep exotic animals? It's completely the wrong question. Because in a, in a free society or a country that at least gives lip service to freedom, uh, the question is, why, why should we prohibit it? Why should we restrict anything? And I think to restrict anybody's freedom, you have to have a really good reason for that. Right. And the the reason would have to be based on valid science. It would have to be based on a valid read of the statistics around the real danger 
not just to the person uh, who's keeping an animal, but to to their neighbors, to their community. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that, there's just not any valid reason, either to try to protect the private keeper from themselves or to protect their neighbors or community. It just doesn't, it doesn't keep, it doesn't present a risk. Now, of course, there are one-off cases. There was a, a two-year-old in Florida that was killed by a Burmese python. There's, you know, cases where, you know, where private keepers are killed. Sure. And but but <clears throat> how how many of those are there? Well, there's there's about seventy or so, so probably seventy plus or minus ten or fifteen exotic envenomations a year mm -hmm. uh, in, in the U.S. There's less than one fatality a year, and so. How big of a problem is it that we're trying to solve? Well, those policy decisions aren't made on logic, and they're not based on science, and they're not based on stats. They're they're made on made based on fear and, and people making you know who, who people who make the, the greatest amount of noise about a subject, and it's the wrong thing to drive public policy. Um, and so when people do things that are foolish, and they do things that put private keeping at risk. Um, you know, they put videos of themselves up on YouTube free-handling gaboon virus or, um, or rattlesnakes or cobras. Mm. Um, that, that bothers me because yeah, it's not for the safety of the person doing it. They, I'm going to give them credit for knowing the risk. I think some of them might not fully appreciate the risk, but assume that they do. Um, that when they get bit, it's going to be a news event, and that news event is going to have legislative aftershocks that ripple through the community. Um, and because it's you know those snake bites are, are such an unusual event, it's not limited to it's not limited to you know Los Angeles. Or it's not limited to San Diego. It's the kind of thing that often makes nationwide news and affects nation affects or influences nationwide policy. Policies, right, right, and. So you know, we, there have been discussions on on the Venom interviews page. You know, even recently, we had the same discussion again about free handling, and there is a uh, a mentality that's pervasive in the industry of you know where these are free spirited, free thinking, you know, strong individualist people who don't like being told what to do. Mm -hmm. And there's a vibe that's uh, along the lines of you know, don't tell me what to do. I can do what I want to do, and you do what you want to do, and don't come down on me, well, well, what you're doing does affect what I'm doing. Um, if, because if you make a mistake, it's going to have legislative impacts on what I'm allowed to do. So you being reckless does affect me. Um, in fact, here where we are in California, it has already affected us because, look at this, all these non-native uh, huts are already illegal and have been for, for decades now. And you know, getting a permit in California even for an institution is exceptionally difficult. It's really right. difficult than it should be. And so I'm, 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 I think, understandably sensitive to people doing things that puts that at further risk. Right, exactly. And same here. Now that brings up um, Edgar's next question, actually. How, would, how do you feel uh, TV's portrayal of venomous snakes has changed since the Steve Irwin days? Now, before you answer that, <laughs> I'm going to piss off my listeners again. You know, um, Steve Irwin was an actor. 
yes, he handled reptiles and worked with reptiles and owned a zoo and what have you. But the fact of the matter is, he was an actor first. He sold himself very well. You know, a lot of the things that I saw in that show, and I only watched a few episodes and got the same feeling I have about a lot of the current media representation of reptiles, you know. Uh, Oh, cracky, you know, this is a venomous snake. Don't try this at home. Well, why the hell are you doing it on TV, jackass? Oh, yeah. You know, but that's my personal take. So, you know, yes, God rest his soul. Sorry he's gone. But he was no Marlon Perkins or, you know, any of the stuff that I grew up on. So I didn't really have that much respect for the man myself. For people like, I mean, we talked about, you know, Marlon Perkins and David Attenborough and, uh, and people like that. And those, it's very easy to have a very simple opinion of them. What they did was phenomenal. It was yeah, exactly. Amazing. They had, a, they had a great love for the animals. They had a great love for the natural world. And that came through in what they were doing. Now, if you look at the other end of the spectrum, where it's, you know, it's typically jackass with snakes now, yeah. it's easy to have an opinion about those because it's just it's clearly nonsensical it's clearly sensationalized it's clearly uh, exaggerated for the sake of uh, of ratings and appeal to the lowest common denominator I mean it's it's the, this is the the Jersey Shore of nature programs it's just it's 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 easy to it's easy to form an opinion about that Steve Irwin is a lot it's not as simple to form an opinion and in fact I when I spoke with everybody about the media, Steve's name obviously came up, and I, I never knew Steve, but I know a lot of people who did know him. And the feelings were much less clear-cut than with the other groups I mentioned. So right. everything I have gathered, Steve had a genuine, true love and fascination for the animals. Yes. With. Um, at the same time, his handling was not as cautious and professional as a lot of people would would like to see that's the exact same thing i've heard (laughs) and and, and as his career went on that uh that screen persona um kind of took over well it it, he became i think my read is that he became almost a caricature of himself where that became more and more exaggerated or that behavior that right attracted the interest to begin with you know, that was fed and that was nourished and so that became, you know, it was incentivized. Right. And so it became, it became, um, I think it became a bit exaggerated. The, I I don't doubt for a minute that he and Terry and Bindi had, uh, you know, have enormous love and respect for these animals. Oh, sure, sure. But the, I think what was tricky about Steve is in his presentation when he died, he it kind of left a vacuum, and what rushed him to fill the void was people that had the crazy mm-hmm, out mm-hmm. the love of the animals. And I think that's that was an unfortunate turning point in in the media coverage. That th- the things that rushed to fill the void, uh, you know, were it was all of the sensationalism without any of the respect for the animals. So, you know, he I, I think. He did an incredible amount of good for uh, herpetoculture and herpetology in in increasing the visibility and the awareness and the familiarity with these animals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he, 
probably without knowing it, uh, primed the pump for the the style of media that we see today. And it, it certainly was not, it, it's not all that legacy. I mean, you have uh, HSUS and Animal Planet and uh, you know, other things on Discovery, and even National Geographic is in a race to the bottom uh, against yeah. Animal Planet. It's, you know, Steve is not to blame for all of those, but I think... No. You know, what I think the, the public came to expect was uh, a very exciting... Um, you know, risky, dangerous-looking presentation. I don't think any of the things that Steve did on camera were anywhere near as dangerous to him as they appeared to be. But it's right. pretty easy to make things look really dangerous on on screen. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that he, even if he wasn't taking risks that were as great as he appeared to be taking, I, I think the imitators that followed they do take some some fairly real risks and uh and i and i think in the absence of the kind of genuine respect uh for the animals that steve had i i think it's really tragic i don't know if that answered your question or not, yeah no it did definitely definitely and uh so as far as you know where do we see venomous keepers uh both private sector and uh, um the scientific level. Where do we see that going in the next 10 years? Well, I think there are two or three answers to that. I'll start with the easy one. Then the <laughs> okay. Field, the scientific field is going nowhere but forward. There's the quality and quantity of work that's being done in that field is, you know, it's incredible. From the pharmaceutical standpoint, from the biochemical standpoint, there's, you know, there's tools, uh, laboratory tools and, and, and techniques that can be used now that didn't exist 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the, the speed of research is not just expanding, but it's accelerating. So that from the, from the scientific standpoint, that it's pretty clear what path that's going to take. You're going to see uh, a lot more pharmaceutical applications, and even if it's not directly using venom, it's going to use you know learnings from proteomics or from from other areas of research uh, where you learn different things about the the way these proteins and peptides affect human biology or biology of other animals. That's, that's pretty clear. That's, gonna, that's going to continue. That's going to accelerate. That's going to flourish. Uh, you know, there's, there's no risk of that going away, certainly. If anything, that's going, to, um, that's going to expand. I think there is a real risk, though, as things get more and more restrictive. As I mentioned, all these, these professionals, or almost all of these professionals, their fascination, their drive came from working with these animals starting at a very young age and starting in their own private collections. And I think there's a very real risk that if you take that away, if you restrict that away, you legislate that away, you you really handicap a, a whole future generation of scientists. And I think that would be incredibly sad. Um, I think it would be an incredible loss to science and to the field of, of herpetology. On the private side, I think there are two answers. There's, there's one answer what I'd like to see. I'd like to see the private sector flourish. I'd like to see people doing the kind of remarkable research that people like Mark Seward do. I'd like to see people continue, um, you know, Al Karitz, uh, in learning how to keep some very difficult animals alive. I'd love to see more of that. Um, but I do think it's pretty clear 
that we face some pretty serious and unnecessary and unfounded legislative threats. And unless the community gets its act together and can unify and get behind uh, one voice, I think they're going to find themselves increasingly restricted. And I think that would also be incredibly sad. Yeah, very definitely. Uh, and, you know, to the extent that you hear people wanting to, you know, create a group to specifically represent venomous keepers or specifically represent large constrictor keepers or, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use the case of the python ban. Um, people had some disappointment that, uh, that four of the nine species that were originally on the chopping block ended up getting restricted and that, you know, they, I think they were hopeful that uh, USR would be able to do more and there's, I think there's a dangerous response to that. There's a dangerous knee-jerk reaction to that is, oh, well, that was the success there, the victory there was incomplete, therefore we need to start another group. I think that is, I think that severely underestimates the difficulty and complexity of, uh, of forming a lobbying body or a, a body that can represent you. Uh, and, and people think you can just quickly spin up another 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 body that has any influence uh, I, I think it's I think it's naive and here's the here's what I would I would encourage people to look at that if you are unable or if you're dissatisfied with the success that uh, the US Arc has had it makes far more sense to join with them and augment that group and strengthen that group uh, than it does to try to, to go it alone. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And further, if you are unable to lobby for the change you want within a group that is sympathetic to your interests, like U.S. ARC, what in the world makes you think you'll be you'll be able to influence a legislative body? Yeah, very definitely. And you know that's something else too that uh, I asked um, Sean Hefflick about. You know, <clears throat> is you know, how do, how do people get to testify in front of Congress? Because we always hear about, you know, oh, well, so-and-so went to Congress and testified. This guy did that, and why, why? Yeah, it turns out that it's not as easy as people think. You actually have to be invited <laughs> to testify. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, one of the things, and I've, I've seen this happen in, in other industries as well, that probably the worst possible thing that could happen to the community is for it to be, uh, for its representation to be splintered among a law. Oh, yeah. Well, the, I, I, one thing I've seen happen in a, a number of other industries is, you know, groups, uh, people are impatient with the, the, the success or the progress of one group. Right. Uh, or they're unhappy with some aspect of it. And so they go off and form another splinter group. And I think that's an incredibly risky thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, I think the more divided the industry appears, but the more competing bodies you have claiming to represent a group of, uh, particularly in the private sector, the weaker the position gets. And it is far more advantageous to to, to stick with a, a body that is the most capable of representing your needs. And if there's something that you'd like to see done differently or strengthened about that body, then lobby for the change with that body. Um, now, one of the things that, that is difficult in the community, as we talked about earlier, there's, you know, there's some very strong individualists. In yeah. There's people who, you know, 
I don't want people to tell me what to do. And, you know, if, certainly nobody can force you to do anything that you don't want to do. But uh, certainly I think it is true that people's uh, ability or their willingness to work cooperatively with each other uh, and preferably behind one group is going to have a, a, a lot of influence in determining the fate of the private sector, um, whether it's large constrictors or, uh, or or venomous, or just the ability to keep any animal at all. And so that's 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 something that I'd I'd like people to give you know careful consideration to. Right, right. Yeah, don't uh, don't just go out and get yourself a snake and you know <laughs> start touting to the media about how cool you are. Well, you know. Reinventing the wheel is expensive. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of money. And yeah. It takes a lot of resources that most people don't have. Whether they're, those resources are time or money or, or connections, you get a lot more mileage out of you know getting behind a group that is already having success than you do trying to go it alone because that is enormously difficult. And in many cases, it's counterproductive. So... Anyway, that's my uh, that's my my little soapbox rant there on that subject. But uh, <laughs> there are probably more where that came from. Oh sure, you know, <laughs> not a problem yeah. at all. And, and, and you know, these are things that, that we care a lot about. And like I mentioned earlier, we we want to be free to pursue the things that interest us. There's clearly no scientific or risk based uh, rationale for restricting these animals. Uh, but you know, it doesn't have to be about risk and fear, uh, or it doesn't have to be about science. It can be just about fear. Mm -hmm. Groups like the Humane Society of the United States and Na Nature Conservancy and, and PETA and various others, misinformation and fear is perfectly fine. It's adequate for their purposes, and it's sure, and it's less expensive. Well, so of course, it's a, yeah, it's a it's an effective tool. So we have a lot, uh, you know, we, we have a lot, uh, a, a lot against us that's, that's a formidable opponent yeah very definitely very definitely all right well um Brad, i don't want to keep you all you know all day although i I'll, although i know i could <laughs> without a doubt <laughs> but uh i know you do have a family you know and you do want to actually produce the venom interviews you know? <laughs> yeah, basically what would be your closing thoughts on Venomous keeping overall, whether it be private keepers, um, the scientists and zoologists, or what have you, you know, what uh, what's the overall consensus that you've taken away from the venom interviews? I guess. Well, I think what was to get back to uh, Carl's original question of what did you learn? Uh, one of the things that I learned is what amazing human beings these these keepers are. Um, not just you know, not just very responsible keepers and not just brilliant scientists, but really genuinely concerned about the animals themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a, that was a really fantastic thing to see, is uh, that, that all of these guys, uh, guys and gals, are, you know, they're, they're serious scientists, whether they're in the, the private sector or in, in more traditional professional institutions. They're just, they're wonderful fascinating people doing fascinating work and I, I, I can't wait to, to spend more time with them. It's, it's just a blast. 
Awesome. So when are you going to uh, allow someone to tag along with you, Ray, <laughs> on the Venom interviews too? <laughs> well, and the sequel. They, well, there's um, uh, there was a theme for a sequel that's been suggested, but I, I don't want to even get. <laughs> <laughs> Do I even dare ask what that was? Well, it's uh, it it involves a, a similar consideration of the subject, uh, but outside the U.S. So in more focused on the developing world. So wow. There are places like, you know, the work that David Williams is doing in Papua New Guinea with the uh, Worldwide Snakebite Initiative, with AVRI are doing in Sri Lanka. There's uh, the work that's done uh, in Costa Rica at uh, Clodomero Picado and producing mm-hmm. you know, probably the best anti-venom in the world. There's, you know, more of the stuff that Brian's doing down in Australia and, uh, and, and elsewhere. There's things that you deal with in Antarctica or I'm sorry. There's things that you deal with in places like Africa, uh, where you deal with things like counterfeit antivenom or wow. witch doctors, and you, you don't run into witch doctors in Texas or in uh, you know in Southern California. So uh, there's a whole other a whole other discussion that's out there, kind of waiting to be had about about those subjects. So once this project uh, gets out the door and and I, I rest a little bit from its enormous scale. <laughs> um, that, that's a project that I would love to love to take on. It's, it's absolutely fascinating, and it includes all kinds of topics that just you know we'd never dream of being able to cover here. Right, right. Now, um, one more thing before I do let you go. I obviously want to volunteer to be the sound guy on that project. <laughs> you know what? I could I, I could use a great sound guy. I have. Um, all of the problems that I had to solve technically in producing this, the audio problems were by far the worst. I mean, yeah. Video problems. Um, I'm you know, a passable photographer uh, anyway, so shooting video is not as technically challenging. But most of the most difficult problems I had to solve were around audio. So, man, if you can bring that, you're in. Cool. I'm in then. Now, uh, one other thing, too. Have you ever heard of a book called The Snakebite Survivors Club? I am looking at it. It's sitting right on my. <laughs> yes. Have uh, you read it? What's that? Have you read it? Oh yes, a couple of times actually. That's what it totally made me think about when you said witch doctors. I'm like Jeremy Seals. <laughs> yeah, that is a that is a, a fantastically entertaining book. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, yeah, for those who don't know, it's written from the standpoint of someone who is terrified of snakes. Yeah, yeah, very terrified of them, and just decides to get over it. Yeah, and, and travels the world getting over it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and man, it talks about some incredible stories. Oh, well, there's, there's some incredible stories. And it goes back, you know, what, 150 years or so? And, yeah. And you know, kind of recounting some of the history of, of early exotical, exotic animal imports and things. It's, uh, you know, just, it's, it's a fantastically entertaining read. Um, there's a, another book um, for people who are interested in, you know, wildlife documentaries or, you know, interested in kind of some of the mechanics of behind what they see on TV now. There's a book uh, by a gentleman called Christopher uh, Palmer who wrote um, a book called Shooting in the Wild, and it is about all these various people, and it goes back to the days of uh, you know, uh, Marlon Perkins, and even, even before that, you know, more around the turn of the century, turn of the last century, actually. Wow. And, um, you know, all the way up to the modern, uh, the modern situation with 
you know, things like Animal Planet, and talks quite a lot about what goes into that and why we see some of the things that we see. And, really? Uh, that... it's, a, it's a fascinating read. Yeah, I'll have to put, uh, I think Jeremy Seal's book, uh, Snake Bite Survivors Club, is in the uh, Reptile Apartment Library. And if not, uh, I'll put that in there as well as the one you just mentioned. And what was the title of that one again? Shooting in the Wild? Yeah, it's called Shooting in the Wild. Okay. But I, I would recommend both of them. Snakebite Survivors Club is just hilarious. It's a yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're a reptile person, it's really funny. It, it really is. So it's, it's, funny to, it's funny to be reading a well-written account from somebody who's not a Harper by any measure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what just floored me. You know, and he tells you right up front too. I am. I don't like snakes. <laughs> well, it, you know, I think a lot of us who are you know, who work up close and personal with these animals and have for you know many many years, we we lose sight. I mean, we hear people talk about being afraid of them, and we we know that people are, but it's so far from our consciousness that we you know we have a a really hard time relating to what's going through their head. I mean, there's. You know, I've you know if I've got a, a gopher snake in my backyard, it's you know it's going to huff and puff and make a lot of noise and put on a great show. But that's not a dangerous animal, and there's nothing to be afraid of. But there are people who just have this innate terror. Yeah, that literally faint at the sight of a snake. Yeah, you know, and, and to read a you know to read that narrative of somebody who's uh, who fits that description. Yeah, uh, it is it is enormously entertaining. It's just a lot of fun. Very definitely. And well, there you have it. That was Ray Morgan from the Venom Interviews, and that's part number two. Uh, and that will close it out for the Venom Interviews. Uh, we do look forward to seeing you next week in the Reptile Living Room, right here at reptilelivingroom.com, or wherever you might be listening on your mobile device. And we do encourage you folks, really check out uh, Herpeticulture House Easing. Uh, that's our sponsor. It's uh, herphousemag.com. And uh, sign up for a subscription or even buy a single issue, which is two bucks, and it's guaranteed 100% satisfaction. If you're not uh, satisfied with it, simply shoot us an email. We'll give you your two bucks back. All right, so we look forward to seeing you back uh, next week in the Reptile Living Room. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>